My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts, so shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding and our heart. Let us pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, we come to a most necessary word. We trust all of the word of God is quite necessary for us. So we pray that in the preaching of the word, that this portion of the word of God would be our spiritual manna. It would be our spiritual food to carry us as pilgrims, as strangers in this earth. We are often laid very low, Father, in our soul. And so we pray that through the preaching of the word, thou wouldst bless thy servants here, that they, even if they cleave unto the dust this day, would be lifted up by Jesus Christ. And so we pray for thy servant that will deliver this word to thy congregation. Bless him with a double measure of thy spirit, for he is in great need that these people would be not lifted to merely this man here, but beyond this man, to Jesus Christ. We desire him to speak then through the minister. Would thou bless thy people then in these ways and open thou our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of the word of God. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the very worst of wounds are not those that afflict the body. The very worst of wounds are those that afflict the soul. Proverbs 18.14 reminds us that the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? If our soul is grievously tormented, in other words, the healthiest of bodies cannot bear it up. The worst of wounds are those that afflict the soul, whether they be a grievous trial, whether it be a sense of God's distance from us, or the effect of our own sin upon us. And in this psalm, the psalmist knows much about the affliction of the soul. He sings of a soul that is without vitality, a soul that cleaves unto the dust of the earth that dare not in its condition be lifted up even to, uh, it seems, his knees. It's just prostrate and prone upon the earth. This is how low the psalmist is. Yet the psalmist did not just keenly feel his low condition, but in his despondency, and this is where he leads us, doesn't he? He had faith that God would visit him, that God would come to him, that God would minister to him and lift him up from the ash heap once again, that God would, in other words, bring revival to his soul. 
The man here, though quite despondent, did what was quite necessary. He had not lost hope in God. He had not lost hope and faith in God. Though his soul, he says, melts with heaviness, yet he looks to God in that heaviness. Not only with an askance for deliverance, which is sometimes as far as we go, but also an anticipation that it will come in the appointed hour. Sometimes we don't ask, but often when we ask, we do not ask with anticipation that deliverance will come one day. That's what's often missing in the despondent Christian, really, at the end of the day, is hope in God. And that is why despondency is not lifted from our spirit. You and I are called never to extinguish hope, no matter how far into the ground we are pressed, but we are to nurture hope as the psalmist does and grow it by the Spirit's blessing. You know, even as the psalmist has here, a small flicker of hope in the Lord, faint and feeble, will lighten your soul and bring your whole life into the heavenly places. And it will also ready ready you for the anticipated day of visitation from God, when God will revive you and visit you. And the psalmist knows, and this is really why this comes in Psalm 119 particularly, the psalmist knows the means by which God will revive his soul. And what is that means? It is the word of God. It is the word of God that the psalmist will use in all of its ways in order with the hope married to the hope that revival will come as he seeks the blessing of God in the word of God. And so the Holy Spirit gives us this psalm to hide in our hearts close by, to memorize and to sing, because we are in great need to remember this cure that is laid out in this word when our soul has need of revival. And so with those introductory thoughts, our theme is simply this, the despondent soul revived by the word. The despondent soul revived, and I might add to that, uh, the life-giving word, by the life-giving word. And we'll divide our text into the three heads on your bulletin. First is the condition, second is the cure, and third, which will be brief, the commitment. So our first heading is the condition. And I'll forego the commentary I've given you, the background on Psalm 119 in the past three months. This is the fourth month we're considering it. But we do remember it as that great acrostic psalm in this fourth section. Every line begins with the fourth Hebrew letter, Dalet, which corresponds roughly both in ordinal as well as sound with our English letter, D. D. So it seems fitting then even as English speakers that this portion can really be summed up by that one word, D, despondency, spiritual despondency as we considered in our introductory thoughts. And this portion opens with a vivid portrayal of what the despondent soul is like. Verse 25 opens it, and it says, My soul cleaveth to the dust. And actually the first word there is cleaveth in the Hebrew, which begins with the letter daleth. And so cleaving to the dust, my soul, might be a very literal translation there. And that's quite an expression, and it's quite a word picture if you think about this, because children, you know that the soul is immaterial, isn't it? 
It is immaterial. And dust is quite physical. Yet the psalmist says his soul cleaves to the dust, even as, and you think on the word, Hebrew word here, cleave. It is the same word used in Genesis 2.24 for marriage, when a man cleaves to his wife, becoming one flesh. It's almost like the man's soul has cleaved to the dust of the earth that is so far brought low. Souls don't cleave, though, to literal dust. And so this is a poetic picture, isn't it, of spiritual despondency of the soul brought crashing low to the earth, uh, almost to the grave. You know, in the Bible, spiritual vitality is pictured as sort of the soul soaring into the heavens to Christ, the soul lifted up, and that's a picture of life. What you have here in spiritual despondency is pictured for you as a soul that has come crashing down and cleaving to the dust. That's really a picture of death. And that's what despondency is like. It's a kind of sense or a feeling of spiritual deadness, isn't it? Now, you remember, there are many pictures of this in the Bible. You remember Job 1. This may be the most um, potent picture. We considered it months ago. You remember that he was first, before he was physically afflicted, he was first greatly afflicted in his soul, wasn't he? Right? His children, his servants, his livelihood, all wiped away immediately in the span of a few moments of time. His body was not yet afflicted in chapter 1, but his soul, it was though a dagger had pierced it, hadn't it? And you remember his response in Job 1.20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. You know, when our soul is wounded, when it is staggered, the body follows, doesn't it? And the body often falls down to the dust of the earth. Job, though like the psalmist would worship God, I'll consider that later. But you may have experienced this as a great grief has struck you. Perhaps a loved one dies. Perhaps uh, there's some great trial you were going through. And, you know, you've seen it pictured even in popular media and maybe you've done it yourself. It's though you come down on your knees, don't you? This is what is happening. It's not that somebody kicked your knees in. It's your soul is so grievously tormented that you fall down. Your body falls down and follows uh, the disposition of your soul. Because you're a psychosomatic unity, aren't you? What affects the soul affects the body. And so your body, which is supported, and mark this well, your body is supported by your soul. It goes numb and falls to the floor. And so to go with this picture of cleaving to the dust, you have verse 28. My soul melteth for heaviness. Now that word melteth also begins that particular line. That word also begins with daleth. And its meaning in the Hebrew is to drop. My soul drops. It droops down for heaviness. And so this is soul affliction in this psalm. And it's not a bodily affliction. The body is merely following the soul. You know, the soul is the seed of man. And so wound the soul and the body follows. So here is a picture of a man who's so afflicted in soul that he is withering away drawn down from heaven and into the dust of the earth. That's a picture of spiritual despondency or depression, if you would rather call it that. Now, 
What are some of the reasons that our soul might feel this way? Well, I want to consider five reasons with you to help, and these are not exhaustive, but uh, to help diagnose reasons for despondency. And I hope these may be helpful for you as you also consider the cures to these things. And the very first reason that we could be despondent is our own sin. And that often causes the hand of God to come down on us, to press down on us and bring us low to the ground. When David had unrepentant sin, listen to how he put it in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. When David had unconfessed sin before God, God was not going to let this child of God sit there and stew in his sinfulness. The hand of God was going to come down upon him, is going to come down and press him lower and lower and lower until he cried out to God and confessed it. And so the Christian is not to tinker or toy with sin or they will expect God's hand to come down on them with heaviness to bring them low to the dust. He will take your soul's vitality from you and cause it to dry out like the drought of summer as in Psalm 32, such that you are dry and then that despondency will come in your soul. Now our problem will be is in that time, as David avoided the cure for so long, we will avoid the cure as well, which is we are to turn away from sin and to the Lord. But what often happens? We do the opposite. We turn to sin and away from the Lord. We get despondent. We get um, depressed. And what do we do? You see so many do it, right? They turn to things like drinking or illicit relationships or mind-numbing entertainments, something of that kind. They will do anything to avoid doing business with the Lord, which is where they ought to go. None of that will cure you. And your soul is not going to be lifted up from the dust of the earth until you turn to the Lord in repentance. It'll only cause God's hand to press you further and further down. But in Psalm 32, as we heard in our call to worship, what happened when David confessed his sin? Then comes the joy. Then comes the rejoicing and the refreshing. You know, in Acts 3, verse 19, connected to repentance is this promise that times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ. This is what happens in repentance. Times of refreshing our, our, our soul, which has withered away, the Lord will, will bring life to. Times of refreshing, rivers of living waters will gush up into our soul. And he will send us Jesus Christ. Repentance is a sweet thing. Vitality comes. So never lose hope in that. If you are far away from the Lord today in your sin, believer, that if you would just turn to the Lord, times of refreshing would come and he can bring you to himself. You just need to go out to him just as you considered Wednesday nights with the prodigal son. You just must turn to the Lord and just as David experienced, vitality will come if it is sin that has brought your soul low. The second reason might be temptations felt upon the soul and that is a great burden as well upon us. 
Being in the presence of temptation to sin and let us never willingly put ourselves in that place is a difficult burden on the true believer. You remember in 2 Peter 2 verse 8 how Lot's soul was vexed. Tormented is what that word means day to day as he had put himself in a place called Sodom. And his soul was tormented. His soul was grieved because he lived amongst an unclean people. His eyes were constantly exposed. And I understand we often don't have a choice in where we may go where temptations come. But when we certainly have a choice, let us never choose Sodom. Let us not put ourselves in the place where our soul would be greatly vexed and tormented. But even... Even so, our soul is often brought low through no fault of our own, just being exposed to the temptation to sin. And to the godliest of men and women, this is a great grief, isn't it? You remember that Christ suffered when he was tempted to sin, didn't he? Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, and we love this part, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And that's the the glory of it, is that our Lord Jesus Christ understands the suffering of temptation, the evil and grossness of sin that comes before our eyes and, and, and tries to toy with our hearts. Though he himself was impeccable, he being the godliest man that ever lived, he was grieved by how filthy sin is. And we are too, as we are righteous in Christ, the thought of it, will grieve us and bring our soul low. So what we are to do is what the Lord has instructed us. We are to pray, right? To deliver us from temptation and to look by faith to the way of escape. And these are the ways in which if our soul is brought low in uh, our grief before temptation that he delivers us. And remember as well that Christ is able to succor them that are tempted. So ask him for help in the midst of temptations, beloved. Now, a third reason are trials or is trials that we undergo. First Peter 1.6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in what? Heaviness. Through manifold temptations. And the word there signifies trials. Not that temptation is not a trial. But trials we face in life will cause our soul to stoop down. Now, perhaps that's blatantly obvious to you, but it's something we must remember, that when the trials come, let us not see that God shows us, let us see that God shows us that we will feel heaviness. We will feel heaviness. And we're not to think something strange has happened to us when we feel heaviness in our soul and the trial comes. You know, this happens to believers even when we do not have unconfessed sin, even when we're not walking in high-handed sin. Job, remember, at the time was the most righteous man on the earth. And yet the trial comes, a great and heavy trial brought by God. You know, listen to the man's lament. I have sewed sackcloth upon my sin, uh, skin and defiled my horn in the dust. My strength is in the dust. My face is foul with weeping, and on my eyelid is the shadow of death, not for any injustice in mine hands. Also my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have no place. 
And now behold, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. Job 16. There will be trials in life that will cause our soul to be just as heavy as Job's. And that is something that we will face. You know, Job's horn, his strength was wasted in the dust. His face streaked with tears. His soul is so heavy. And it's like the weight of the world was on his soul and it brought him very low. You remember that man? His friends turned on him, accused him of things he was not guilty of. His wife spat him at him, curse God and die. Children all dead and gone. His fear that they were all apostates and were suffering in hell eternally. Surely such things bring our soul down. Yet hope is not to be lost, and I'll speak on that in just a bit. The fourth reason for heaviness for the godly is actually something that we are maybe not prone to be mourning over, but we must be, and that's for the state of the church. Those who are keenly aware of the state of Christ's church have a heaviness. You know, as Jeremiah surveyed the state of Christ's church and the wreckage of Jerusalem in Lamentations 1.16, he said, For these things I weep, mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water. You know, the godly cannot help but be affected by the state of the church of Jesus Christ when it is brought low. You know, even today, there is a sense of heaviness in the church, isn't there? Even churches that we believe are quite biblical are facing a lack of vitality, though there are pockets of life here and there. But overall, the church is filled with disease and it's filled with death. And we are not apart from that. We are part of that, beloved. You might say even that of Dallas RPC and better churches than ours. That there is and there must be a sense of heaviness. You know, you read the histories of the church and you see what great vitality that there has been in the church of Jesus Christ and how different that seems from our day and age right now. We need an outpouring of the Spirit, don't we? We need revival as we've considered it in days past where we would know such days of heaven on the earth as the church once did. Not speaking of numbers, but spiritual vitality. Vitality where every man and his neighbor seems to have a hunger and thirst for God, where their soul is lifted up to the God of heaven and all that is on their mind are the things of God. But that said, speaking of such vitality, we need it and we are to plead for it. But we are again not those who are without hope because we know that God can restore to the church the years that the locusts have eaten away. That we can be as those who sing in Psalm 126 that as those returning exiles returned from Babylon, their mouths filled with laughter and delight, the Lord can suddenly change things in the church. And so we are again not filled with despair, even if we have a sense of heaviness. And really that culminates with this fifth and final reason that we consider for heaviness. And this is the one that you must always contend against the most, which is the loss of hope. The loss of hope. How that will kill you, brethren. 
You notice that in all these reasons for despondency I've listed, there is no reason to lose hope if you are in Christ. Not at all. And what I mean by hope, of course, children, is hope in God. Not hope in worldly things, but hope in God. You know, the common theme for every despondency is this. Do not lose hope in God. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. You know, when hope is gone from you, child of God, you will be made very sick. Your heart, your soul will come crashing down to the earth more than for any other reason. You know, a terrible thing happens when you lose hope in God. The songs of praise, they cease. The soul withers. Your own duty to the Lord stops because you say, why bother? What's the point? Everything seems pointless, doesn't it? Food tastes like ash. The loss of hope in God will murder the soul. That is something we must never have, a loss of hope in God. And you see that here in this text. I've already intimated. The psalmist never lost his hope in God. It's the one thing he will not do, it will not compromise on. What we are to be, even in the darkest days, in the darkest times, in the dark night of our soul or the darkest night in the church, is we are to be like Simeon, aren't we? Who never lost his hope in the promise of God. And he knew that God would visit not just him, but his people in the appointed time. And he had that great hope vindicated, didn't he? What does Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 for repetition's sake for our soul say? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou where? In God. For I shall yet praise him. Look at that determination. Who is the health of my countenance and my God. He is the health of your soul. You are to look to him, beloved, in the the times in which your soul has come crashing down to the earth. You are to hope in God and you are to constrain your soul. You are to speak to your soul and bring it under the mastery of the Holy Spirit. Hope now in God. And I will praise him still. So we look to God. Now, we remember Christ in all these things. And you recall, even as I've read, his sympathy for us. But the Savior, have you forgotten, felt great heaviness in his own soul on the earth. You know, in the Psalm of the Cross, as you marry it with this Psalm, you think of Psalm 22:15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. You know, our Lord fastened upon his cross suffering for our sins. You know, why was the hand of God heavy on him? It was not his sin, but ours. Even so, his soul was was seemingly brought to the dust of death even before his body entered the grave. His soul was already flirting with the grave. How great were the afflictions of our Savior's soul on the earth. It was only kept by the power of his divine nature, by the power of God. But in all these things, his human soul being kept, that is, by the power of God. And so in all these things, though, the point is this. Jesus sympathizes with you when your soul is heavy. 
He actually knows a heaviness in the soul that the believer will never know. Far, far greater than any believer, far greater than Job ever knew, is the Savior's own sorrow. And so you're not united to Job. You're united to Christ. And the Savior has great sympathy, and he knows according to the human nature what the soul pressed to the floor feels like. And his heart goes out to you when you cry out to him. And he cares for you in that. He draws you to himself. And he says, turn to me. Come unto me, my little lamb, and I will give rest to your soul. And that thought, that bare thought, won't it begin the soul's ascent to heaven where Jesus is now? And that soul who by faith considers Jesus will turn to his word to meet with him. And so let's consider how the psalmist uses the word in our second heading, which is the cure. Well, the psalmist says in verse 25, quicken thou me according to thy word. Now, boys and girls, that older word quicken means to bring to life or bring life. It means, in other words, to revive the soul. That's the sense here. Give it vitality which is what the psalmist lacked, of course. And how does he want the Lord to do it? He says, according to thy word. And so you notice here that when it comes to means that the Lord has given for the revival of the soul, the word of God is the primary means that he uses. And that's the key concept. That's the key takeaway from this portion of God's word. It is actually, and this is helpful for you to remember, it's actually an intrinsic property of the word of God to bring vitality to us. It's an intrinsic property of the word of God to bring vitality to us. Why else did Job say this, that I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food? He says, more than food will bring to my body, the word of God will bring vitality to my soul. More necessary is soul food to uphold you than physical food. And this quickening property of the word is how the word testifies of itself. How is one first quickened to the new birth? After all, it is the word of God. First Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word is living and active and abiding And so vitality comes through the living word. Christ says of his own word in John 6.63, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. What does he say of the words that he speaks? The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, it's intrinsic to the word of God to bring life to us. Christ says, this of his word. He says, of course, it is the Holy Spirit, ultimately, who is the, the effectual cause of these things. He is the one who quickens us and he revives us, as Christ has said. But what is the instrument? What is the means that he works with and blesses and uses? It is the word of God. These words are spirit. They are spiritual and they are life to the soul. And so, believer, After your conversion, does the word cease to be life to you? No. Yet so often we think, well, there's the word for conversion. 
and I don't need it to revive my soul. That's absolutely false. You need it to revive your soul. If you need vitality, should you not go to it in faith and dependence on the Lord as the psalmist does? Uh, Here, just mark this well. God infuses soul-strengthening grace through the word of God. That is the truth of the word. He infuses soul-strengthening grace. He gives you grace. It's a means of grace. And so the soul that is lowered to the dust of the earth can be raised by the grace of God, by the word of God. And the psalmist uses the diversity of the word of God in seeking a cure for his soul. Every portion of the word of God has its use, whether it is promise, whether it is commandment, whether it is threatening. And I want to survey seven uses of the word that bring vitality to you. Six of these come straight out of the text, and the seventh will be inferred. And so the first use that the psalmist has for the word is to look to God's promise, to God's promise to him. Because as I've said, the loss of hope is the deadliest weapon or wound to the soul. But hope is kindled and rekindled by the word of God that reminds us of God's exceeding great and precious promises. So the first thought the psalmist has is to go to the promises of God. Verse 25b, quicken thou me according to thy word. Now, if the psalmist were David, he was thinking of the promises of the Davidic covenant undoubtedly. I cannot die. I cannot be put to shame because God has given to me and to my seed precious promises forever. God will establish me. Uh, Jesus would have sung this psalm being strengthened by the promises given to him. You remember that he went to the cross despising the shame. Why? Because of the promises given to him for the joy that was set before him. He knew what was coming, uh, that there was joy set before him because of what the word of God testifies for to him. He knew that after misery would come exaltation. To think on the promises of God then to the believer will bring strength to the soul. And on verse 49, that's a two or three portions of the psalm later. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. So there's this remembrance of promises that are given to us in the word of God, which bring vitality to our life and our soul. In verse, you know, back to our text in verse 28b, strengthen thou me according unto thy word. There's a beautiful word picture here. The Hebrew word translated strengthen literally means to rise up. So it's the opposite of a soul stooped down. It's the rising up out of the dust. And he says it'll be the promises of the word that have this effect. Now you remember our Lord, even in Psalm 22 and on the cross, of course, where his his soul is like uh, cleaving to the dust himself. And our Lord even knew that his body would be lowered into the grave, even as he gives up the ghost. But he had a promise, didn't he, in Psalm 16, that his, his body would not see corruption, that he would not see corruption as he was lowered into the grave. And on the third day, he would rise up again. He would rise up again. And believer, don't you have that very same promise from the Lord? That you will not ultimately see the corruption of the grave. 
will you? That ultimately your soul is going to be freed from everything that ails you. As low as your soul is now, one day it will be raised into the heavens. Just as surely as that thief on the cross was with Christ in paradise on the day he died, so too will it be for you. And then on the third day, you have a promise, or not the third day, you, like Christ, will be raised up your body to meet your soul in heaven. And you will be free from every corruption and you will be able to enjoy God fully in paradise. That is a sure hope. It is the hope of the gospel and it is yours. And it is these things that we look forward to. The the, the general resurrection, the life to come. And the hope of the gospel is in no way deferred. It will surely come. You will have these things. And so before your body is raised in the resurrection, your soul can be lifted to the heavens even this day by remembering that sure promise. Think of 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Do you think that despondency in your soul will have the victory, believer? Absolutely not. Just as surely as death has no victory over you, your soul's depression and despondency will be utterly erased. And what's the use of thinking on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and the destruction of death in the death of Christ? Therefore what? Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and so on. The soul is raised up, the soul is lifted up, thinking on the promises of God. Now, the second way that the psalmist uses the word is he uses the word for self-examination. Verse 26, I have declared my ways and thou heardest me. Now, he addresses God in prayer and he presents his ways to God. He had searched out his ways before the word of God. The word has that effect. It discerns our thoughts and intents of our hearts, right? We check the word and we check our heart against it. And when our soul is low to the ground, we ought to search and try out our ways. And if there is something to repent of, we repent of it as we heard earlier and we turn to the Lord. Now, if there are areas as well where we are vindicated by the grace of God and encouraged in our walk, we praise God that he has given us grace as we search out our ways to be faithful, even in adversity. So searching out our ways doesn't always mean it's a purely negative thing, is it, brethren? But we are to search out our ways when we're laid low, and often we are surprised when we're brought low what's in our hearts, both good and ill. But do you notice the part that even pious Christians often neglect? The psalmist speaks to God in these things. You know, in his examination, He doesn't divorce it from God. He says, thou hurtest me, meaning he brings his examination to the Lord, both to forgive any sin, as well as that God would hear his struggles and his anguish too. You know, we forget God wants to hear from us in these spiritual exercises and God will hear us. We're to bring the state of our heart to the Lord and not to shy away from him, right? We find the dross and often we're ashamed, but God says, speak to me. Let us speak together. I will speak out of the word and you will speak to me in prayer and we will do business together. 
Lamentations 3, 40, 41. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us, right? It doesn't stop there. He says, let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. Don't believe the lie of the devil that you are to hide your heart from God. That's just as stupid as Adam and Eve were in the garden after the fall. You are to search the defect and bring your defect to God and he will lift your heart into the heavens and cleanse you. Third, we'll go through these a bit quicker because of time. Third, in verse 26, the psalmist says, teach me thy statutes. You know, he wants to know more of the word of God and he even wants to know more of his duty to God. Now you might think this is a curious thing. His soul is laid low in the dust. Yet in the midst of it, what does he say? I want to know more of God's ways. I actually want to know more of God's ways. Often, right, we want affliction removed, but we don't want to walk with God in the midst of it. And that is what better knowing the statutes of God enables you to do, is to walk with God. Because that is what happens when you follow the statutes of God. You are walking close after Christ, right? The Lord is my shepherd. We want to sing that. We want to believe that. We want to know that. Yet we want to, to, we don't want often to know the statutes of the Lord by which we may follow the good shepherd. But he says, I want to follow the good shepherd. Show me thy statutes. Because that will be closeness and that will be nearness to the Lord when he is brought low. The child of God says that the statutes of God are their delight in their pilgrimage. In verse 71, another portion of the psalm, the psalmist says famously, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? That I might learn thy statutes. He sees it's to his spiritual benefit that he's laid low in the dust. And so I would say make most of your time in the dust, brethren, and pick up the book and learn vitality, life will come if we pick up the Bible in faith, we meditate on it, and we consider it, and we learn it, and we follow it by God's grace. And you also need understanding of it to come by grace. Verse 27a, make me to understand the way of thy precepts. Now, isn't that a prayer in a time of affliction? Give me grace to enliven my mind, to understand the ways of God that my mind would be enraptured by the ways of God, that I would know it and I would follow it. Once again, though, you see here, and because of time's sake, I have to be brief here, you see a running dialogue between the psalmist and the Lord, right? He treats the word of God as though it is alive, as communication from God himself. He speaks to the Lord about the Lord's own work as he reads and ruminates, and he asks God for help with the word in prayer as well. So prayer and the word, they go hand in glove, brethren. They are meant to be paired. And that's how vitality comes to us. As we open the word of God and won't open it as a mere book, but as God's communication, his words being life to us. The next, what he sees is, uh, fourthly, uh, what he sees in the word of God, he will speak of. So shall I talk of, of thy wondrous works. I suppose first a meditation on the wondrous works of God would be in order, right? Such that your heart finds them marvelous and worthy of awe and wonder. You know, a funny thing happens to creatures who are laid low in the dust when they consider the exaltation and magnificence and uh, glory of the Lord. They themselves are lifted up. 
in a consideration of their own lowliness in the dust. This is a way of humbling ourselves before God, is to see God as high, that even if our tears watered all the earth, God is worthy of great praise and adulation. What works are we think of? Well, you think on the creation and its wonders, first of all, especially the creation of the crown jewel of, uh, of creation, which is man himself. What about his work in creating you, brethren? What does David say? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? Even when we're brought low, that doesn't negate the fact, the truth, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God for God. And you're to consider that work and you are to magnify him. You are made for a purpose as a Christian. What's that purpose as a Christian? Well, it leads you to the most glorious work of all, the work of redemption. The wonder of salvation, the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh, reconciling the world to himself, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And these things to us, when we are low in the dust, become wondrous and marvelous as they ought to be because they are. And then the psalmist says he will speak of them. Now, isn't it true, I was thinking of this, that in Romans 8, the most exalted thoughts of God intersect with the saints in their lowest condition? Talking about persecution and famine and the sword, at the same time thinking of the glory of the Lord. That's what we must do. And who are you to speak of these things to? Well, really anyone and everyone. Like the Samaritan woman, those who are going to go door to door tonight will speak to all. But you say, no one wants to hear. Fine. Well, God loves it when you speak to him. So why don't you tell him what's close to your heart? That you know his marvelous works and that you are going to magnify him even in your time with the dust. When you say, I may be barely hanging on, but even so, how great thou art. Fourth, he asks that the law would be used as a corrective for him. Verse 29, remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. Now, lying is a great sin. You know this is uh, part and parcel of the devil's character. Uh, And sad to say, it's not an uncommon sin amongst us. And the ninth commandment, as we've often considered it, is very, very challenging. But what I want to put before you is that the way of lying here is not strictly limited to the ninth commandment. It deals with all the commandments, even the first commandment. Romans 1.25, for instance, we read, who changed the truth of God into what? A lie. And worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what we have in the psalm here is a poetic way of him asking for sin and idolatry to be removed from him. Those are the way of lying. That is the way of lie. That is not the way of blessedness. Idolatry and unbelief are the gravest of sins. And so what is it that he asks God to exchange that with? Grant me thy law graciously. Now he wants the law given to him, not just as words to memorize, right? When we say this, what we're not saying is just give me the law so I can have it in my Bible. He's saying instead that these would be words to ingest and to imbibe into the soul. That is a gracious giving of the law, that it's engraven upon our minds and upon our hearts where it belongs. Give me the law of God graciously that I may exercise it in a gracious way. We want the law of God written upon our hearts where it belongs, and that requires the grace of God. And this is something to ask for. 
And that leads to the fifth use of the word, which is choosing to follow it, um, or the next use. Uh, In verse 30, he said, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. Um, And this is really part and parcel of the last uh, use. Now, the way of truth is an embracing of the truth of God's word. It's set in opposition to the lie. And he says, I will choose to live my life this way. And that's a choice all of us must make. That's a a choice that you must make by God's grace. If we ask for the Lord to grant us the law graciously, he must also give us the power uh, of a will infused by grace to choose to follow the commandments of God willingly, cheerfully. And this is something we are to ask for. And he says, thy judgments have I laid before me. He says, I will lay the word of God ever before me. They will ever be before me and vitality will come through that as well. In verse 31, he says, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. And so this is, he's expressing his heart here that he has chosen the way of the Lord and he has stuck to his testimonies by God's grace. And the word stuck is the very same Hebrew word as to cleave in verse 25. And so his soul may be cleaving to the dust of the earth, but the man's resolution is, I will cleave to the commandments of God. That's really where I ought to be cleaving and that's where I will be cleaving. I will tenaciously, by God's grace, cleave to the testimonies of the Lord And we will see that there is no shame to the one who walks in their integrity before God. Even if this man's soul is laid low because of the shame men have brought upon him, there will be no shame to the one who follows the commandments of God. Ultimately, in the judgment, you will be vindicated, Christian, and there will be no shame for you for following the ways of the Lord. Instead, shame will come on those in the final judgment who shamed the Christian in this life for following the commandments. Next, the psalmist worships God with his word. And that's what he does in the psalm, of course. The psalm is given for worship. He praises God with his word. When Job fell down in Job 1.20, he fell down, right? His soul comes crashing down. But what does he do? He worships. How about you and me? Will we take the psalms and worship God in despondency? Will we lift our hearts to the God of heaven when we are cleaving to the dust? And let me put it this way, should we not? Should we not? Is this not God's due even when we are brought low? Should it not actually, when we are brought low to the dust, should it not be a reminder for us to worship the God of heaven? Should it not even remind us of what our Lord encountered for our salvation, that he was laid into the grave Because of our sin. Yes, and we should praise him. So God has given us praise even when we are laid low in the dust and cleaving to it. And we think on this, of the graciousness of God to give us a song like this. Should we not have songs to sing to God when our soul is laid low in the dust and tribulation? Must all of our songs be full of happiness so that that even happiness that we do not presently feel When our soul cleaves to the dust, should we sing trite things? No. Sad to say, the problem is many don't want a book of praises with lament in it. And yet God has given us such a thing. They say, it's too depressing. I want to come and only be encouraged 
uh, in the worship of God know, but you know, this is real encouragement here, isn't it, brethren? That we have such a song to sing to the Lord. What they really want is not encouragement. They want a sugar high for about 15 minutes and then get on in the day. And then when their soul is crushed, they know not what to do. They don't want to experience the fullness of the Christian life and want to hide from it. Now, in this life, we will have tribulation. We will have sorrow and pain. We are united to the man of sorrows after all. And why should we think our life is going to be any more cheery than his? Is a servant greater than the master? Absolutely not. God has given a book to sing when you are hurting and you are to pick it up and praise him. And lastly, on that note, the one use that we infer from the rest of the scripture that the psalmist undoubtedly used this word for is to remember Jesus is the word made flesh. That's just John 1.14. And so in the other six uses I've gone with you, your thoughts are always meant to arise to him. You're not to divorce any use of the word from your precious Lord, Christian. You think of the commandments of God. What does he say? If ye love me, keep my commandments. You think of the promises of God. All the promises of God are yea and amen in him. You think of the glory of God in the word of God. And you think of the glory of God shining in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think of the sorrows in the word of God. And you think of the sorrows of Christ being laid low into the dust for our sake. And so every use of the word for our soul in its, in its low condition finds its connection to our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are to praise him for it. You know, you are to rejoice if you suffer for a righteous sake that you are experiencing Christ himself. What does the apostle say? His glory is in that he would know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Isn't it a marvelous thing to remember that when the Lord of heaven took on a human nature, that human nature was brought low to the ground, lower than you or I will ever go, Christian. And we are to glorify him. So seven ways the word of God can raise up your soul and go and use the word and wait on the Lord in the hope that in the appointed time he will visit you and bring vitality to your soul. And many of you know this anyway, experientially, that he has always come to you in the appointed time when your soul has been brought low and he will come again. He will leap over the mountains of sin and despondency and affliction and the dawn always arises and the Lord Jesus Christ will visit you. You just need to wait patiently with expectation. Well, with time gone, I want to briefly conclude with the commitment. Verse 32, I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. This is how he ends. And in the Hebrew mind, heart and soul are synonyms. They're synonymous. And so what he has here in view is an enlarged heart, which is a picture of the soul's revival and vitality returned to him. That's the opposite then of a soul cleaving to the dust. But why does he ask for this vitality? Why does he ask for an infusion of spiritual health? And I think this is key. What's the reason? It's plain. It's right there in your Bible. So that he could run the way of God's commandments. That he could run after Jesus Christ in the keeping of the word of God. The, the psalmist will not spend 
his upcoming forthcoming vitality on carnal pleasures or on his own comfort or on his own ease. He will use it to run in the way of the Lord. He will use it to run after Jesus Christ. After all, right, if it be Christ that revives us, should it not be Christ that we run after when revival comes? Would God give us vitality in our soul, revive our soul, lift us up from our despondency to walk away from Jesus? No. So you make a commitment to the Lord in your prayer when you seek revival for your soul, that I will use the health that thou will give me so that I may better serve thee. Lastly, the psalmist did not say, if thou shalt enlarge my heart. What does he say? When. You see this. To the very end, he maintains hope. He doesn't say if. He knows as a child of God, it will come. And so his hope is there and he's not sick. He never loses hope that God will revive his soul. Well, brethren, time is long gone, but the cure for the soul is in the life-giving word of God. Seek it out in faith and hope and love. Say, oh, my soul, maybe right now, I can only crawl, crawl to the word. Fine, but so be it. I will not lose hope that I will one day run and I will follow hard after the Lord. In the meantime, I will be faithful to the Lord and use his word in all these seven ways that we have considered this morning. And may God give us grace to believe and live in such a manner. Amen. Please arise for prayer if able. Oh, gracious God of heaven, we confess before thee that when we are often in the dust, we look down upon the earth and do not lift up our soul to the heavens where Christ is seated at God's right hand. And when we look to the heavens, Father, we forget that out of the heavens has been given a life-giving word to us that we may know our Savior that as the apostle said, even as he would know the Savior in suffering, he would also know his Savior in every way and through the word of God supremely. Help us to know Christ when we are brought low and help us to resolve to follow hard after him. If any here are dead in their sins and trespasses, may they hear from the word of God that Christ can give them life and may they take hold of him by faith, clinging to the Redeemer, receiving him by faith, repenting of their sin, that they might find eternal life, life everlasting. And may those of us who are sick here today, and maybe those in the congregation who are not even able to be with us due to their sickness of soul, may thou enable them to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that thou would lift them up. And may we all remember that it's not a question of if, but when the Lord will revive us. Revive us again, O Lord, and turn us unto thee. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.